it is still really freaking cold outside. Right now, up in Minnesota, in the frozen north, for sure, it is like negative something today. Like, not just like negative as in below actual like freezing point at 32 or zero if you're thinking Celsius in you other civilized countries, but actually like zero as in Fahrenheit. So it's really cold outside, but luckily we are nice and warm and ensconced in our building today. But anyway, <laughs> welcome to History Pop, where we examine the intersection of pop culture and history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. And I'm your host, Courtney, and I have a special guest today, Ryan, and we'll introduce him here in just a minute here. Um, and so today we're going to be continuing and finishing off our conversation about the musical Six, where we have Henry VIII's wives meets Spice Girls. Uh, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into our conversation today, and we're going to have a lot of fun, I think. Now remember, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. Hello and welcome back. Back to History Pop. So once again, we're talking about six today, and I would like to introduce our very special ghost, who actually, uh, ghost, our special ghost, our special ghost, <laughs> who actually went to go and see the show with me. So now I've actually gotten to see it twice, so this is super exciting. Um, but yeah, so this is my BFF, Ryan. He is a historian, and he's going to have some interesting uh, viewpoints for us today. No pressure. I hope. So would you like to give a few brief words of introduction as to who you are, what you do, what uh, professional certifications do you have to be able to have these opinions? Hmm? Uh, greetings, history poppers. <laughs> oh, we have a name now! Well, yeah. Yes! All five I of us. <laughs> uh... So, my name is Ryan. I there are tens of us! Yes, Sorry. literal tens. <laughs> uh, uh, my name is Ryan, and I am a park guide at the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail, which means that I do interpretation of history for a living. I got a master's degree in history from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I see you doing a lot of Nebraska, being in Omaha, being in Lincoln. Do you do a lot of Nebraska history? A bit. There's uh, a very small portion of the Lewis and Clark expedition that actually intersects with Nebraska history. And there's also a small portion of National Park Service history that intersects with Nebraska history. And those are typically the themes that I try to talk about when I'm giving my interpretation. Uh, so just for our audience's sake, because I've been doing a lot of European mm -hmm. history, when was the Lewis and Clark expedition? Ah, yes. For those of you who don't remember back to fourth grade, at least in the United States, that when, that's when we usually cover it. Lewis and Clark, or Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, were a couple of American explorers who were charged by President Thomas Jefferson <laughs> with following the water courses, a practicable navigable water route connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The idea being that they could find a way to cross the North American continent without getting out of the boat, or only getting out of the boat for a short little bit, from the years 1803 to 1806. They managed to get their way up the Missouri River to the very headwaters of that river and discover that that long-sought dream, the Northwest Passage, that very water route, 
was in fact a total myth. That actually dates back to your period. I was going to say, actually, they were trying to find that back in the Elizabethan, actually even further back, uh, Henry Cabot, um, under Henry VII, actually was sent out to go and find the Northwest Passage. Mm -hmm. So this is the late 15th century. Yes. Lewis and Clark are actually the end of that story, they being the first white people to really discover that the Rocky Mountains not only were extremely tall, but also extremely vast. <laughs> Hundreds of miles from east to west and thousands from north to south, splitting the American continent and forever rendering impossible the idea of a Northwest Passage. That is, listeners, until 2019, when global warming has actually oh, opened no. up enough of the ice caps that, in fact, in Canada today, you can, in fact, sail around the northern side of the continent in the summer months. Yay! I think that's the proper response. Okay, well, so you have a historian's background, so what sort of training do you have in historical interpretation? So I have a, a smattering of trainings from the National Park Service, uh, foundations and interpretation and uh, just what we call the National Park Service foundations. Um, <clears throat> I also have a theatrical background. I graduated with uh, degrees, uh, multiple degrees in history and theater. And so my uh, experience on the stage as a thespian it's a thespian. Yes. You have to say it dramatically when you say thespian. My th experience is a thespian. Yes. Because the word itself, thespian, isn't pompous enough. It must be done <laughs> with an accent. I am a thespian, if you will. <laughs> an artiste. Mm -hmm. So that gave me a lot of the experience that I use at Lewis and Clark. And then I also do a fair bit of first person historical interpretation, which. Oh. For those of you who don't know, means that I actually get into costume and pretend to be a dead person. Yay! Much like our queens on the stage. Exactly. So, from your experiences then, uh, actually, let's uh, talk about your theater voice. Let's go ahead and put your theater cap on. Oh, thank those you, are my sound effects. Appreciate that. All right. So, uh, from your theater background and point of view then, what are your overall impressions of Six, just to start off with? What really impressed you, and was there anything that kind of didn't? Well, first of all, I'd have to say it's a fantastic show. Mm -hmm. uh, it was beautifully lit, beautifully choreographed, wonderfully staged. Don't mind me, I'm just pouring tea. Yep, no worries. That was my personal space. It's fine. We have one mic, it's fine. She's coming back. <laughs> all right. So... Beautifully lit, wonderfully choreographed, uh, incredibly staged. The sound was fantastic. And for historical interpretation, this would firmly go, I think, into your category of fictionalized. Just a wee bit, yeah. I think it definitely is a good job of that. Mm -hmm. So we've got actual living historical figures that are talking about actual historical events that happened to them. However, they are doing so very much through a 21st century prism. <laughs> um, I love the interpretation of it, and I think that's one of the best parts of well-done first-person historical interpretation is there's going to be some anachronisms that mm -hmm. slip in, and that is to help people of the present 
better relate to and connect with people of the past. Yes, so. because the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Exactly. <laughs> uh, in particular, one that struck me as really well done was Anne Boleyn. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. What about our second queen on the stage, Anne Boleyn? So Anne Boleyn seems to tell her story through the perspective of social media. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh, your comment went viral. <laughs> um, and I think that's a great analysis and way of getting people to relate to, I think, probably what the dynamics at Henry VIII's court were like. It was like being on a permanent Facebook page. Tell me more. So you have all these people that are trying to get as much screen time, if you will, with the king. <laughs> you want to be close to him and you want to get the most. You want to get his likes and you want to get his retweets. Exactly. <laughs> that's not Facebook. That's a Twitter analogy. Hashtag I'm so smart. I am totally good at social media. Hashtag I'm not. <laughs> so the idea that Anne Boleyn is doing a lot of what she is doing to get likes and retweets and to get more of that attention, I think helps people better understand that she was a very able courtier mm -hmm. and that she was very good at manipulating a situation until eventually she got in over her head. What am I meant to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she does a of the queens she does a remarkable job of translating that story into a 21st century palette okay and I, I think actually i would agree with you especially just looking by the audience reactions mm -hmm. uh so i've gotten to see the show twice and then i also got the chance to go to a press junket basically that was at the mall of america to build up hype for the show where the queens all got the chance to perform a couple of songs and do a q a and it was really interesting to actually see how many of the tween and teen girls who were there in the audience because there were a ton, and I was so excited and so pleased to see so many young women and young men who were really interested and excited about the show. Mm -hmm. But so many of them were dressed up at least doing a little bit of cosplay as Anne Boleyn. Interesting. Yeah, so we had the very distinctive, because uh, one of the things that you'll notice uh, looking through the press materials and the photographs that are produced for the show is that each of the queens has a very distinctive look that actually kind of takes off from portraiture and then also kind of not. Mo uh, it's a mix between their uh, musical uh, inspirations and uh, as, you know, uh, like, uh, I know, like, Ariana Grande is one of the inspirations for Kate Howard. Uh, and, like, Avril Lavigne is one of the inspirations for Anne Boleyn. So we have a mixture of the musical uh, inspirations as well as the historical queens. And so Anne Boleyn has these very distinctive, almost Sailor Moon-esque hair buns that are yes. on the top of her head yes. with little spikes around them. That is absolutely accurate. Yeah, and so there were at least four or five young women in the audience who had their hair buns up like that. They didn't mm -hmm. necessarily have the rest of the costumes because it's a very extensive sort of costuming, and I really want to actually get another sewing machine to make one of these costumes. Mm. It'd be so much fun. Uh, that, that's kind of a meta sort of historical interpretation, like you're cosplaying as a cosplay of a historical character. 
I think we just broke the fourth wall. Oh my god. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so it's really interesting to see, like you're talking about, how Anne Boleyn, at least how her story is packaged in this show, is resonating, especially with a much younger audience. Mm-hmm. So then uh, you talked a bit about like the lighting, and you mm-hmm. talked a bit about just like the general staging. So then from your theater point of view what were some of the very strongest aspects of this as a performance you know coming from an actor's background what would you find actually to be the most difficult to do on the stage well for one thing it's a relatively short show Mm -hmm. i mean it's i think it comes in at less than 90 minutes it's about an hour and a half Uh, yeah then there's no intermission Mm -hmm. and so you're dealing with these figures that um you, you've got a, a, a fairly large cast. I mean, six people for a 90-minute show. And then you have the four ladies-in-waiting. Yes, and you do have the four ladies-in-waiting. Um, but one of your chief goals is to get people to quickly identify who the characters are and differentiate them. Mm-hmm. And you've got some real challenges with that because two of the, char- or two of the characters are named Anne and three are named Catherine. Yes. So now we have to quickly differentiate these people and then introduce a fair amount of history. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, as I think when the show went live in England, they could assume a greater historical understanding from the audience about the period. Oh, yeah, because uh, that's actually something that I've read a lot about on my academic Twitter, because I follow a lot of English historians, and a lot of people think I'm English on Twitter for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Henry VIII basically is one of those touchstones that yep. they always hit in primary school, just like Lewis and Clark, hopefully, is one of the ones that we do here in America, but we always talk a bit about like the Civil War. We right. talk a little bit about our state's history. Yes. So those are things that are always hit in some sort of state curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like Henry VIII is in the UK. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that they can assume greater knowledge of who these people were, at the very least, no, uh, an understanding of their existence. Yeah. And that Henry VIII had six wives. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so I know you haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, but I think comparing this show to Hamilton yes, oh is, God, a, very, is so a very apt comparison. Hmm. So, I mean, the Henry VIII's reign is really, and correct me, being you being the expert in this field and me being the amateur, <laughs> is really where you see the break of England from Europe. And it starts, to, it starts to chart a lot of its own courses. I mean, it splits from the church, so it's automatically divided out from the community there. But we also had a breaking out of a lot of the German duchies in the Holy Roman Empire as well. That's fair. But... Uh, Paralleling that, you have Hamilton and the American Revolution, mm-hmm. and how that starts to chart a different course for American history. And then uh, a lot of those, I think, sort of creation myths mm. that are so important to a culture, mm-hmm. I think a lot of those probably come from like the Tudor period. I mean, not Henry himself, but you know, you have the sinking of the Spanish Armada. Mm-hmm. So that's in, Elizabeth in 1588. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. And how that becomes, I think, really important to England's identity. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when was the last successful invasion of England from the mainland? 
We in the Conqueror. That's what I would say. <laughs> and that was 1066, folks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Although, actually, thinking about that and kind of taking a slight deviation from the idea of six, uh, thinking about the idea of this as a creation of identity mm-hmm. sort of uh, work, I would actually argue that even though a lot of people don't talk about it as much, yeah, you're absolutely right that the thinking of the Invincible Armada was a huge thing. But honestly, England didn't do a whole lot to do it. God was an Englishman and sank the fleet basically himself. Um, But I would actually say the loss of Calais during Mary's Mm, reign was probably even greater of importance. This would be a controversial opinion in the historical communities. Um, Simply because of the fact that it was the last vestiges of England's empire on the continent. So we have England then expanding. You know, England had always said it was an empire. And Mary, when she was crowned, was crowned with three crowns. Uh, One for England, one for Ireland, and one for France. Because England technically was an empire. uh, And they like to talk about themselves as an empire. Hashtag forget about Wales. Well, Wales was already kind of pulled in as a principality by that point in time. So we'd had for centuries, I think it was Edward II, I want to double check and make sure, but as like the first prince of Wales, basically. Um, And it's not like Wales was really happy about that at that particular point in time. But by the time we get to the Tudors, there are less and less of popular uprisings Mm -hmm. against England in Mm -hmm. Wales. It's not like they're not still happening from time to time, because people are still pissed. But... Wales is much more incorporated into the fabric of government Mm -hmm. at that point in time. But I think especially with the loss of Calais that we actually have then uh, England expanding westward. Because we see a lot of that during Elizabeth's reign. Yeah. And then even more during James's. Yeah. But anyway, talking about Henry VIII's queens. Although I feel like we should just... I want to do more of these. This is fun. Okay. Anyway, um, so thinking about then the performance, um, what, if anything, could they have changed from like an aesthetic or a performance viewpoint to make it an even stronger or more impactful performance for you? Hmm. You know, they did a really, really remarkable job of, as I said earlier, establishing those characters Mm -hmm. and then getting you to empathize with them. And recognize them. And there were a few times where the actors stepped out of those roles. Um, most notably, I'd say the House, the House of, of Holbein. Holbein. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and, and you know, putting the ruffle collars on and then the thick sunglasses, which are totally period accurate, I'm Oh, sure. yeah, completely and utterly. And plastic was totes a thing back in Henrique in England. Yep. So, that is a, a, another kudos to them of helping establish that. Um, I would say, you know, I really don't have a lot of criticisms for the show. That's fine. Yeah. it's It was very well done. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Excellent. I'm very glad to hear that because you came with me, so yay. Uh, honestly, uh, one of the things that was really struck me about getting to see it the opening night and then again a week later was that there were problems actually the opening night in Off terms of yeah, 
because uh, one of the things that because uh, I went with my partner and he was talking about and he's like one of the things that they can't really you know account for is how loud the audience is going to be and so there were audio issues uh there was a few times that Catherine of Aragon dropped off during her song Mm uh there was a couple of times just throughout where we had uh audio issues that way we also had some lighting issues and they really stepped up the lighting game for your show it was incredibly done um one of the things that i actually really loved was that they didn't have the first time and even if they did i wouldn't have seen it because i had uh seats that were basically right next to the stage for the first show and then up in the balcony for the second which honestly was really great to get to see it from these two completely different viewpoints so Mm -hmm. i could actually see the stage as a whole versus much more of like the uh micro expressions of the actors and kind of getting a little bit more of those uh interactions that they have close up so I loved getting to see it from these two different viewpoints. Um, But one of the things that I never would have caught, even if they had done it for the first one, was during the second I saw that they had uh, these lighting sweeps. And I don't know the technical terms because as much as I am very theatrical myself, (laughs) so dramatic, um, I actually don't have a a formal background in theater. So please correct me because you know things. Um, At least I pretend to very effectively. Because it wasn't, which it was, is theater in and of itself. That's true. Fake it till you make it. Performativity, baby. Um, so one of the spotlights they had like uh, filters on them, so that yes. way they had like different, not just not just the um, films for color, mm-hmm. but also for different shapes. Yes. And it was really kind of cool because they had the shapes that were kind of like flowing around the stage and mm-hmm. moving around, especially during Kate Parr's song, and uh, they were two to roses. Oh, yeah. And it was just like the people on the ground, which was where I was for the first show, would never have noticed that. Right. Because they were the bed of roses. And so you had to be up high to be able to see it and appreciate it. So that was something actually I really liked as well. So there's something for the people who are down on the ground as well as the people who are up further back. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was added in, and that was fantastic. And at the very end of the show, spoiler alert, sweetie, uh, they have basically party cannons where you have uh, confetti being oh, shot. Oh, yeah. Lots of confetti. So much confetti. Um, but they actually did a much better job of controlling the confetti for the second show than they did for the first because they went out all the way over the audience for the first one. <laughs> and they basically kept it contained to the stage. I would also argue a part of that is gauging your audience. Uh-huh. Because, so, being, you know, in the frozen north where we are, <laughs> uh, the audiences are a bit more conservative in that they usually, do, they, they usually don't interact as much. If you go to other places, so, I mean, to, to hop across the pond to your favorite part, um, if you were to go and see a play performed in Germany, mm-hmm. the audience is expected to remain almost entirely silent for the duration of the performance and then mm-hmm. show their appreciation in applause at the end. Whereas if you were to see the same show in, say, Ireland or Italy... Mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot more audience participation. Okay, so kind of like, honestly, a very early modern sort of understanding of performance because that's the thing with Shakespeare, especially we have questions for audience participation um, and how they emphasize going forward with uh, you know writing the plays and how they're going to be performing them. So like uh, Hamlet's famous soliloquy, you know, to be or not to be, mm-hmm. that was him asking the audience whether or not he should off himself. 
And depending on how the audience reacted to him, I don't know if they would necessarily change up the performance very much, but they might emphasize different things going forward. But, you know, they would have people who would shout at Hamlin, you know, if he was not doing a good job that day. Yeah, Hamlet, you should totally kill yourself, you know, because why not? Uh, but Immediate no. feedback. Oh, great. As, a, as an actor, what, what a lovely thing. <laughs> but that was what was expected mm-hmm. back around the turn of the century. And when I say that, I mean going from 1500s to 1600s, because um, that is the turn of the century that I study. And... So, so we're looking more in terms of that sort of audience participation. And actually, I was, uh, I've been following a lot of the press surrounding Six mm-hmm. here in St. Paul. And apparently, one of the shows last week, uh, the reporter was talking about how uh, when Kate Howard was kind of dithering a bit before doing her song, you know, kind of like leading into it and giving the audience a little bit of uh, anticipation for it. Apparently, there was a little boy who just yelled, Sing already! <laughs> yeah whoa but they actually foster that sort of uh reaction from their audience throughout because you know they're like they absolutely do i mean they are attempting throughout the show to solicit feedback Mm -hmm. from the audience come on saint paul are you ready yeah exactly (laughs) exactly so i feel i do feel a bit so is this the opening of the show, or has it already played elsewhere in the States? Oh, yeah, it's played elsewhere in the States. This cast was originally put together for the Chicago performance back last summer, which I'm really sad I didn't get to go to because I was living in Milwaukee at the time, so it wasn't that far away. (sighs) But uh, so they had about a month or so at the Shakespeare Theater in Chicago, and then I think they did a couple of other shows just throughout North America, and uh, then they're settling here at the Ordway, and then this is the first time in the Ordway's history for a show to go directly to Broadway from the Ordway. That's really cool. Yeah. But, so to go back. Yes. Uh, yes, I, I think in Chicago, you could generally expect a lot more reaction mm-hmm. and engagement from your audience than you could in St. Paul. But they do a really good job of eliciting that And they do. Feedback. I mean, they, they work really hard at it, and you can tell. But to go back to the what started us on this tangent... <laughs> Um, the confetti cannons. Yes, confetti cannons. Confetti cannons. Super fun. Some people enjoy it. I know a lot of people who would hate having confetti shot at them. But it's sparkly and pretty. And I actually have my confetti in here that I taped in after the performance. Where did it go? Confetti, come back. Here. Here we go. Ah, There it is. I see it. For those of you who are listening in, which is everyone... (laughs) Courtney does, in fact, have multiple pieces of confetti taped into her journal. <laughs> um, yes, for those of you who don't have the visuals, it's gold and beautiful. So I think they, they did a wonderful job of trying to expand and engage the audience like that um, and, and adapting the show. Because with a touring show especially, yeah, you have to be able to adapt to the cultural norms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember I had a, uh, a theater director once who told me that the most evil thing she'd ever done to an audience was one play in particular. It was a one act with a lot of angst and it was about 45 minutes she'd said. And she had put a red scoop light, which is a, a light that projects a very wide arc. Um, in the back and set it on a 45 minute warm-up timer 
So that about 20 to 25 minutes into the show, people started realizing that the audience was illuminated, which here's a helpful tip for anyone staging a show. If you want to alienate an audience, turn on the lights. (laughs) Because people in the audience have this sort of misled belief that they are sitting in darkness and invisible. But doing that will greatly um, antagonize your audience. And make them feel just a bit uncomfortable. Yep. Which I'm assuming for this show made a lot of sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of uncomfortable, I want to know how old this little boy you mentioned was. I don't know. It didn't say it. Because don't the... get me wrong, it's it's not an X-rated show, but I would say that some of the themes in Six are very adult. Yeah, they kind of by necessity are. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is interesting, too, that just how much of a, a cross-appeal that we do have across demographics. Mm-hmm. Because the songs are all super poppy, and they all do a really good job of tapping into trends in music right now. Mm-hmm. And so if you're listening to things on the radio, these aren't wholly dissimilar. No, not at all. To what you would hear on the radio. Now, I am an old fuddy-duddy, and I don't listen to things on the radio as much as I used to, so I do a lot of Spotify. But, yeah, no, these definitely do tap into cultural trends. Did you just call yourself a fuddy-duddy for using Spotify? <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Yes, did. <laughs> I'm one of these fuddy-duddies that uses the internet to <laughs> listen to music, music <laughs> rather than, you know, listening to it on the AM radio. Um, so the lighting, actually, mm-hmm. thinking about that. So did the lighting in Six uh, help to alienate or help to foster that connection with the audience? I think foster much more than alienate. They were... Uh, at no point do I remember there being a light, a sustained light on any part of the audience. And to go back to our earlier uh, comment, when you're establishing those characters, they did a brilliant job, especially at first, of using the spotlight mm-hmm. to highlight who was singing, mm-hmm. who you needed to be paying attention to, yes. and moving one to the next to the next. Um, creating a sort of continuity in the show and then also helping to establish a relationship between the audience and the characters. Yeah, because we have that sort of tidbitty sort of knowledge that they try to give you. No, my name's Catherine of Aragon, so they give you the name. Oh, it's kind of like the uh, introduction for Inigo Montoya. You know, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to, to die. die. So it is you know, my name, an expecta- uh, you know, something about me, and then an expectation. Yeah. And so that's what we get with each of these different queens. Absolutely. Um, although, actually, does Anne Boleyn actually say that she's Anne Boleyn? My, yeah, I'm, I'm that Boleyn girl, and I'm, I'm up next. I broke England from the church. Yeah, I'm that sexy. <laughs> yeah, but she says she's that Boleyn girl. Mm-hmm. So that's actually probably one of the reasons why we get... Uh, there's actually a special little song surrounding Anne Boleyn in the show that doesn't pop up in the soundtrack. Really? Yeah, it's the uh, one where it says, like, you know, the Anne with the plan, you know, mysterious. Anne Bullet. Yeah, you know, uh, as, and then we see her as they, uh, uh, as they stop the song and she's back in the back with her phone. That's not that, in the soundtrack. That's not in the soundtrack. You're absolutely right. I've uh-huh. forgotten. 
So I love actually when they have those little added things mm-hmm. that you don't get in the soundtrack. And actually, I really do want to have them do a uh, Broadway cast soundtrack when they get to Broadway because mm-hmm. I would buy it. Uh, but so I was actually thinking about the lighting again in terms of how you were talking about how having the light on the audience kind of alienates the audience. Yes. In terms of an early modern expectation, you know, thinking once again about Shakespeare's time, turn of the century, 16th and the 17th century, that's very different mm-hmm. than what we have today. And so um, the lighting of the stage, you know, you do have a little bit more lighting of the stage than you would of the audience. But did you ever get to see a show at Blackfriars when you went to Stanton? Hmm. No, I did get to see a dress rehearsal for Richard III. Okay, because I... So, well, I should say part of a dress rehearsal. I got, I got to see um, a few scenes. Okay. Uh, so how was the lighting there? The lighting there was uh, pretty traditional in, in, in a modern sense. Okay. I mean, the, the stage itself was very well illuminated. The audience, however, remained kind of dimly lit. Another uh, pro tip, as somebody who has done a fair amount of acting, uh, audience members out there, believe it or not, we can see you. Yes. Because <laughs> light does, in fact, bounce. <laughs> So all the light that's going on the stage actually does go in. Also, those of you who have the nerve to check your phones during a performance, you are putting a spotlight on yourself because trust me, nothing emits a blue glow like a cell phone. And this tip was brought to you by the letters A and Q. I don't know. Uh, But yes, good theater etiquette. Mm. Um, so that's interesting, actually, because they've done a lot to reconstruct the Blackfriars Theater, which is one of the premier, th- one of the premier theaters from uh, the sort of Shakespearean time he was around for the Blackfriars, but it also took more prominence uh, later on in like the 1620s and 1630s as one of the indoor theaters in London. Mm-hmm. And how it would have been lit back then was you actually would have just candlelight throughout. Mm-hmm. And so the audience is decently well lit. Uh, the stage is a little bit brighter, so you can actually see it. But honestly, everything has a fairly uniform level of light. And so the audience can be seen. Because that's actually another thing, too, is when you're going to the theater in this particular period, you're going to see the show as much as to be seen at the show. Oh, absolutely. And so if the if it's too dark, then you can't be seen in your you know beautiful finery and stuff like that. And actually, rich people would have seats on the stage awkward yeah a little bit but then you get to actually interact with them as the actor and there's a quite a few different early modern plays i would need to go through and read them but i've read a few of them that actually have uh scenes where you're expecting someone to be up on the stage with you for the most part even though they're not a character Mm -hmm. and you interact with them and make fun of them basically it's amazing um but anyway so then thinking about this you know putting you know taking off your theater hat and then putting on your historical interpretation hat. Mm-hmm. Not your park guide hat, but your historical interpretation hat. That's true. Very um, different hats. Yes, very different hats. Much, much uh, wider brim on the park ranger hat. <laughs> um, so then what was the strongest bit, do you think, of six? Or the most powerful bit of historical interpretation in the piece? Hmm. Well, when you say most powerful, the one that immediately comes to mind is Catherine Howard's song. Mm-hmm. So uh, Catherine Howard, at, going back to your earlier podcast. Please do. Uh, being the 
woman who I think had the misfortune of repeated sexual assault throughout mm-hmm. her lifetime and then eventually was murdered for said sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that piece changed so drastically from the official soundtrack to watching it live. It was incredible. So in the soundtrack, you get the feeling of frustration from her at all these continued uh, sexual proposals from the men that she's meeting. But in the live show, you see the desperation and the fury at how she can't escape it. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens to her, and the the fel- her fellow actors did so much to do that. I mean, the way that it was choreographed when she started the song, there was almost kind of a reverence and a bowing down that the other actors gave to her. I'm the ten amongst these threes, mm-hmm. and then they begin increasingly touching her to the point where they are pawing at her mm-hmm. in the fourth chorus. And she is trying to get away, but can't because she's surrounded. And the conclusion of that song and the utter deafening silence that filled the theater. And that, I think, was one of the best parts of interpreting a historical reality to a modern audience. And I think of all the historic education that came out of this fictionalized performance, that one, I think, did the best. And I think a lot of people are going to walk away from that show and Google, was Catherine Howard raped? Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing then is if they do Google that, uh, historians for the most part would not necessarily, especially in some sort of an academic writing or environment where they would, you know, have to put their names on the line, they're not going to say that she was raped. That's something that because these two creators are working specifically for the pop uh, area for the general audience, and because they are not academic historians, they can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we don't have the documentary evidence to be able to say specifically that she was raped or that um, our interpretations of rape are different than the early modern interpretations of rape. Very true. Because rape at the time was a property crime. Oh, yeah. Not something against a personal person. Uh, So, and because she wasn't married, then the only people who actually would have benefited from, you know, pursuing her rapists would have been the people who were supposed to be taking care of her. Mm -hmm. Or if she had been married and someone else had raped her, then the, her husband could sue or attack the person, uh, legally, not, you know, physically, uh, to seek for damages. So here's a random historical question. Yeah. For Henry VIII Mm -hmm. and his time period, is dueling a thing in England? Oh. You know, I don't know. I would probably need to read uh, uh, Castiglione's uh, Courtier. I think there would probably be something there that's a early modern, it's like a 1550s, I want to say. 
originally coming from the Italian about it's a conduct book, Mm -hmm. which basically explains how you're supposed to act in any given situation and what is a good, noble, virtuous behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, To be honest, I haven't read a lot of the books that deal with what men's behavior was supposed to be. I focus on the women's. Uh, So I'd have to look into that. But I would say that there is this... Uh, sort of knightly, and when I say knight, I mean as like in Shining Armor Knight, um, or masculine understanding, uh, courtly understanding of dueling. Mm -hmm. But usually, I would say that that was more in terms of these kind of fictionalized rivalries that they create for tournaments. Uh, Since we do have uh, tournaments, you know, like we had, like we have sporting events today. They had tournaments where we right. have like, oh no, oh hey, look at this. This team is rivals with this team, just like you'd have this night as a rival with this night. Um, but yeah, no, I am not the best person to ask about that. But I would say, yeah, there probably was some in terms of just general understanding. Uh, but yeah, so I would say dueling is not necessarily as much of a thing as it comes to be in later centuries. Okay. Once we have much more in terms of like the uh, arms. Uh, you know, pistols and things mm-hmm. like that. Because we do have firepower, firepower, goodness, gunpowder. Uh, we have gunpowder, we have some firearms, but we don't necessarily have the same sophistication as we do much later when mm-hmm. we think about dueling in terms of, like, the Hamilton-Burr duel. Absolutely. So where were we going with this? Oh, I was just curious about the idea of... Oh, someone fighting for, like, Kate Howard's honor? Yes. Oh, yeah, no, but there wouldn't have been necessarily a person in place to be able to do that for her Mm -hmm. because her dad was kind of an absent figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mom had died. Her mom wasn't going to duel anyway because women didn't duel unless you were like the, oh, God, I always forget her name, but there's this French woman who would wear men's clothes and she would go around and she broke into nunneries to sleep with the nuns and she would uh, steal these men's wives away from them and duel them and she won every single time. All right. Yeah, no, I need to look her up. She's amazing. Uh, but, uh, But no, there wouldn't have been anybody who could step in, really, for Kay that way. Definitely, I would say, the most tragic of the figures on stage, in at least as the play is portrayed, if not in historical reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think definitely they all have a bit of tragedy to them, except for maybe Anna of Cleves. She's got a little bit of sadness, but I wouldn't say her life was tragic. Mm. So then, uh, what particularly, in terms of interpretation, uh, would you say they did to make that a much more powerful moment was it the choreography was the choreography it the was definitely part of it uh, the singing of course is absolutely part of it the lighting was also an instrumental part of that uh in case you can't tell uh from the way i keep coming back to it but lighting design was something i did a lot of <laughs> in college and you start out that song and i don't know if you notice this but the lights are very bright mm-hmm. and it's very showy and it gets dimmer and dimmer with every chorus. Yeah, there to... was actually a circle that I saw mm-hmm. on the stage that they kept kind of stepping into, and you could use that to kind of gauge how close they were getting to her Yes. for the all-you-want-to-do parts. Yes, absolutely. And it gets slowly more and more suffocating. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely loved how that was done. 
I agree. It was it was a really interestingly done and something that I didn't expect from the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So if you just listen to the soundtrack, you're only getting half the performance. Absolutely, if um, that. Yeah. Um, so then, as someone who has heard about the period mm-hmm. from me, mostly I'm assuming. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, some reading on it in world history, but. Uh, no, I never took an early modern English history course. What? What can I say? I actually did in my undergrad. I actually had specifically an early modern England course. I had Renaissance and Reformation. I had medieval, uh, medieval Europe, and then I had early modern England. Mm. What about Dark Ages England? For those of you who can't see, I'm being fixed with a death glare right now. <laughs> yeah, he, he knows which buttons to push, and he knows that Dark Ages is a trigger button for me. We're not going to get into that right now, Ryan. All right. Anyway. Uh, so then as someone who has learned about the period mostly from me, uh, so what did you find? What was the most interesting event or concept in the show to you historically? Mm. So maybe something that you had already known or something that was maybe new to you. And then what made it so interesting? From a historical interpretation standpoint, I, even though I don't think historical interpretation was the primary goal of this number, I really loved House of Holbein. Uh Uh-huh. And the uh, different levels that got to play with there. Um, The little little throwaway jokes, uh, like... Your makeup is poison, mm-hmm. but it will bring all of the boys in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, and the little bits, the little snippets there, I think, of daily life for an early modern courtier were really interesting. Um, and then you and I have talked about this some the modern impositions on that. Mm-hmm. So for instance. Uh, you bring the corsets, we'll bring the cinches. No one wants a waist over nine, nine inches. inches. And I thought, nine inches? Was that an early modern aspiration? And a- as you and I have discussed, no, that's that's more of a, a modern intrusion. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you that. wanted to have a good, uh, not necessarily hourglass figure, uh, but you wanted to have a small waist and big hips. And while corsets were used to you know bring in that fleshy area around your waist that was mostly achieved by the farthingales or the uh skirts like the hoop skirts that came into fashion in england especially with catherine of aragon she actually brought the spanish farthingale uh with her when she came in 1501 and, yeah, that's actually something that you don't necessarily get in the show, uh, thinking about it, is that Catherine of Aragon was a massive leader of fashion uh, until probably the 1520s. Mm. That's another area, I would say, of historical interpretation that I think got lost in the play. I mean, they do mention that she was there for 24 years. And I know that you would argue with this figure and have argued in previous podcasts that it should really be 27. Yes, if we're looking at it from her point of view, Catherine of Aragon would say that she was married to Henry VIII and was Queen of England until the day she died. Right. 
But what we don't talk about so much is how much time each of the rest of them got, and how, correct me if I'm wrong here, all of the other five put together do not equal 24 years. Oh, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. So simply by the act of staging her as one of six, you have to diminish her role Mm -hmm. as queen, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because she had, simply just the fact that she was there for so long, she had the opportunity to demonstrate different acts of queenship, different tropes of queenship, of what was expected for her as a late medieval, early modern queen. Uh, You know, she had these acts of intercession. She um, got to act as regent, and Henry did not necessarily trust all of his wives to act as regents. And I talked a little bit about it in Catherine's historical background, where uh, Henry went off to go and fight in France because he needed to prove his manliness. There's lots of other reasons involved as well, but Henry wanted to have this, you know, big quest to be able to show that he was a big boy, just like Charles V, and, uh, you know, Holy Roman Emperor and, you know, Francis in France. Or Henry V. Or Henry V, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Henry V is an actually interesting idol for Henry VIII. Uh, we actually have a lot of imagery and other things coming back of Henry V. You know, the hero of Agincourt. Uh, 1415, I want to say? I would need to double check that. Don't look to me on that one. <laughs> now I'm actually going to pause for just a second and double check when was Agincourt. So coming back from that quick pause, which I will probably edit out. Yes, I was absolutely right. 1415, Agincourt. Congratulations. Thank you. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. Totally what he said. Well, actually, we do have some... mm, Shakespeare obviously embellished it for the play, but we we do know that he did give a speech. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, I don't know if he was necessarily referencing St. Crispin's Day or anything like that, but we do have the knowledge that there was a rousing speech. But anyway, so Henry VIII did look to Henry V, right. um, and so he wanted to kind of recreate this win uh, for the Hundred Years' War, which was Agincourt for England, where we have this moment of national glory. And then afterwards, we actually have Henry V becoming the heir to the throne of the King of France. Uh, not necessarily because of his wife, Catherine of Valois, but basically mostly because of his wife, Catherine of Valois. Because uh, France has Salaclaw, which we've talked a little bit about, where women cannot inherit the throne and men cannot inherit the throne through a claim of a woman, basically. So, like, if your mom was a princess of France, you don't get to inherit the throne of France mm-hmm. because you'd be claiming it through a woman's line. Okay, so yeah, so we do have Agincourt, we have Henry VIII trying to emulate Henry V, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why in 1513 he went to go fight in France to mm-hmm. show that he was just as cool of a king as Henry V. Um, and then we do have Catherine, who's left as regent. Now, as I said before, that Henry didn't really trust his wives to do that, although to be fair... His the, later wives. Yes, we have Catherine Parr, who actually does get to be regent. Again, mm-hmm. uh, once again, before Henry, or after Henry dies. Before. All right. Uh, if it was after, then it would have been during the reign of Edward the Sixth. Well, you just said she gets to be regent. Yeah, she gets to be regent cause, as Henry's wife. Oh. Okay. Um, yeah, because Edward the Sixth technically had a regent-ish, more of a lord protector. Uh, his maternal uncle, uh, okay. the Duke of Somerset. Uh, was his lord protector, kind of like how Richard III was supposed to be for Edward V. That didn't end well. Um, But anyway, we're not going to get into that because I have opinions. 
And that has nothing to do with this show. Right. Um, so we do have Catherine of Aragon getting to be queen of England from 1509 all the way until the divorce technically happened, 1533. And like you said, the other five queens combined don't touch that time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, because after that we have Anne Boleyn from you know starting in 1533, and then we have various periods of their ten years as queen until Henry's death in 1547. So that's what fourteen years. Yeah, and so that with the rest of the five queens combined doesn't have the impact of Catherine mm-hmm. of Aragon, and so I think you're absolutely right that they had to diminish her and bring her down a bit in terms of the things that they could say that she accomplished as queen or that would have made her misery come out that much more. Because uh, I think if you don't talk about the fact that she had been queen for that long or even a little, because they talk a bit about how, you know, she came over from Spain on her sweet 16th birthday mm-hmm. and just to marry some guy that she had barely met. And... You know, some guy named Arthur, and then she talked about how weird it was to marry her husband's brother later on, which honestly wasn't that weird, especially for Catherine, because uh, her older siblings did that exact same thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Her oldest sister, Isabella, had been married, I believe, to the king of Portugal. And I think his name was Manuel, but I'm not sure. I'd have to double check. But anyway, uh, is What's that? A name that isn't Elizabeth or Henry or Catherine? Well, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Iberian Peninsula, which is super fun. And so we have Isabella, who, which actually would be Elizabeth, if you really think about it. And actually, there are some uh, chronicles that have Isabella uh, translated to Elizabeth. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So you have King Ferdinand and Queen Elizabeth. Yes. Like, oh, okay, this is an adjustment. Uh, But anyway, so uh, the oldest daughter... Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella was named Isabella and so she was sent off to go and marry the king of Portugal and she desperately didn't want to. She was afraid of dying in childbirth which is exactly what she did. So then after she dies uh, Catherine's not next oldest sister because the next oldest sister was Juana uh, but the one after that was Maria and Maria was then because Juana was already married off Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to what's its face? Philip Fair. And, oh, yeah, what's-his-face. Yeah, what's-his-face, Philip Fair. And so then Maria was the next unmarried daughter, and so she actually went to go and marry her older sister's widower. <laughs> and so we have a lot of that happening, and then, you know, you just get the papal dispensation, and it was totally fine. So as much as they play it up in the show, that's another one of those 21st century lenses coming mm-hmm. in, because that's something you probably won't do in the 21st century, is marry your brother's, your, your husband's brother. Yeah. Former husband's brother. Probably not. Especially not if your husband's alive, because that's bigamy. But <laughs> that's not how that worked even back then. Right. <laughs> uh, but so that wasn't that weird in the early modern period um, or in the medieval period or mm-hmm. whatever. And so we get a little bit of that uh but we don't get, honestly, a whole lot. She talks about how she's basically imprisoned for seven years, which she wasn't necessarily imprisoned. She just had a really rough go of it. She, if you want to say that she really couldn't leave England as imprisonment, then yeah, you could use that as an interpretation there. So there's a question mm-hmm. that you and I have talked about previously in regard to Catherine. Mm-hmm. 
Would Henry have allowed her to leave England had she so desired? Henry the Seventh? Eighth. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, Henry the Seventh. Okay. Um, to be honest, probably not. Hmm. Uh, because he wanted the other half of the dowry. And if she leaves, she takes it with her. And he wanted that money. Henry the Seventh. there is this uh, image of him as kind of like this greedy, um, very frugal sort of guy. And in some ways he really was. Uh, and under him he had a very effective tax collection um, system going. And so he actually did build the royal coffers. And so when Henry VIII comes to the throne, he inherits a crap ton of money from his dad. Uh, and of course, one of the first things that he does is executes Empson and Dudley, who are his dad's tax collectors. Because, unsurprisingly, they weren't very popular. Um, but yeah, so Henry Seems the like VII... a quintessentially Henry VIII thing to do. Oh, it very much so was. <sighs> we could talk about Henry. Um, also for you, dear listeners, this is a, a sticking point between Courtney and myself. Uh, I am very much an economic-based historian. Whereas Courtney is much more a social. How would you characterize yourself? Um, well, I do women's history. Uh, so I would say I am a sociocultural historian. Oh, very fair. But I also have a major focus on individuals. Uh, so I probably, I wouldn't say I'm a, bi- I'm a biographer, but I would say that biography heavily influences the type of history that I do. Okay. Um... But, uh, and so she didn't want to leave England because she knew her destiny from as far back as she could remember was to become Queen of England. Mm. And if she goes back to Spain to try to find someone else to marry, there goes that whole identity for her. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the show does have, by necessity, has to kind of make her one of six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in so doing, we do diminish what she had going for her, having been queen for so long and been in England for so long. And one of the things that the show doesn't really talk about, even though they do a really good job, I think, of pushing back against the whole, you, know, you obviously you can't really put these women in competition with each other because their lives were so very different mm-hmm. from one another. And then that's just enforcing this patriarchal arbitrary structure. Um... But one of the things that the show does really well is it actually calls that into question um, and helps us to kind of look at these queens a bit as individuals and what their individual contributions to English history were. So then, uh, thinking about then in terms of how we had to kind of bring down Catherine of Aragon, were you, did you feel that any of the other queens then had a bit more of a boost than they necessarily, not necessarily deserved, because we're talking about putting these people as people individually and what their accomplishments and efforts and trials and tribulations were. But do you think that there was some of these struggles that were put a spotlight on that didn't necessarily merit it as much? Going by the benchmark of, I guess, time in office, for for lack of a better word... (laughs) Uh, Anna of Cleves got a lot of attention. She really did. I mean, realistically, she kind of got two songs. Mm-hmm. The House of Holbein yeah. and Get Down. Yeah. And 
especially given the premise mm-hmm. that they introduced the show on of it will be a competition to see who had to deal the most with Henry's BS. Mm-hmm. Anna got off pretty easily <laughs> in terms of in terms of what Henry VIII did to his wives. Anna, I would say, undoubtedly has the happiest ending. Mm-hmm. Which is funny, because if you think about it, like Anne of Cleves, not Anne of Cleves, uh, Anne Boleyn's, uh, one of her mottos was the most happy. Really? Yep. I don't remember that. Yeah, they didn't mention it. Oh, okay. Well then, I feel better about not remembering <laughs> So it's not it. that you didn't remember it, it's that you didn't learn it. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't presented to you. Uh, but yeah, so one of her mottos was the most happy, just like I, I talked a little bit about in the podcast for like Jean Seymour, uh, Bound to Obey and Serve. Yes. Um, yeah, I love looking at the mottos for these queens. So actually thinking about this, uh, the motto, so we have uh, one of Anne Boleyn's was the most happy, mm-hmm. uh, but we do actually have some of these incorporated throughout. I've been humble and loyal. Yes. Yep. Catherine of Aragon's. Yes. Uh, most happy for Anne Boleyn. I talked a little bit about Jane Seymour, bound to obey and serve. Mm-hmm. That definitely comes out in her song. Mm-hmm. And we actually have that as kind of a throwback to Elizabeth of York's as well. Um, let's see. So Anne of Cleves, God send me well to keep. Catherine Howard, no other will than his. That also sadly kind of comes through in her song. Mm-hmm. Now the his is supposed to be capitalized his. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God and all that sort of stuff. Right. But I also think that, yeah, you could definitely see it in terms of how she is pushed and pulled around by all of the powerful men in her life. Like, after her song is done, she thanks. You know, she's like, I won! Yay! Now to thank all the powerful men who got me here today. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, women are employed to get into these men's chambers. You know, it was a different time then. Yeah. That one definitely... uh... The, uh, a product of the of the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. I think. Very much, absolutely. And actually thinking back to the Q&A that the Queens did, um, one of the questions, you know, is what are the lessons that we should take away from Six? And Samantha Polly, who is the actress for Kate Howard, said, believe women. And mm-hmm. so she very much tied in Kate Howard's experiences to this modern uh, Me Too movement. Yeah. And you can definitely see that then in how it's portrayed in the show. Yeah. Um, and then Kate Pars is to be useful in all that I do. Woke, these mottos are not. Yeah. Except for Anne Boleyn. Most happy. That's yeah, the true. most happy. Yeah, you know, she's just good. like, I do this for me. This is great. I am the most happy. Hashtag YOLO. <laughs> so that's also possibly where they kind of get that uh, idea of her from, because she does seem to be much more of the Renaissance woman, because once we actually have the Renaissance humanistic teachings coming in, we have this emphasis on the individual and on individual lives and how uh, people have their own, once again, individual um connections to God and to the holy and to uh, just knowledge in general mm-hmm. and how knowledge is created. And so Anne Boleyn, I think, very much is a representation of that. 
uh, Catherine of Aragon also had a very Renaissance humanistic education as well. Um, but I think that Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon have very different educations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so we have the these mottos that are talking about what the queens, you know, were projecting what they were expecting themselves to be as queens. Um, so then, just to kind of shift our topics a mm-hmm. little bit, what was the most fun for you about the show? No, 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 no way. Catherine of Aragon's song for me was fantastic fantastic why so much fun so much fun and uh i loved the tone of it i loved the story that she got to tell and uh, another thing that i really loved about just the performance as a whole was the colorblind casting Mm -hmm. that was given though i don't know if colorblind is really the right word i don't think it is to give it because there is the her entire song, um, there is a strength of character and purpose that you see throughout her song mm-hmm. that it made me think a lot of like Aretha Franklin, actually. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, the, the queen inspiration of Beyonce, I can definitely also see there. Oh, look at you. So prepared. It's already pulled up. Well, no, I have uh, uh, Adriana Hicks. I have the cast actually pulled up because I was going to talk a little bit about how um, we actually had in both of the shows I got to go and see. So in the show show that you got to see, Rai, two alternates. Yes. um, Which is also interesting as well. So we have uh, Andrea Macassett, who played Anne Boleyn. Uh, And normally uh, it would be Abby Mueller, who would play Jane Seymour, but she was out with an injury. Uh, She's going to be out for the whole Ordway run. So uh, Mallory Maidke is coming in to play Jane Seymour. She was fantastic. She absolutely was. Um, Normally, Brittany Mack, another African-American actress, uh, would be playing Anne of Cleves, but we don't have the explanation as to why she was out. And so we have Nicole Kyung-mi Lambert, who stepped in to play Anne of Cleves, who I think is probably going to be going for a couple more shows as well. Also fantastic. Oh, yeah. No, she was amazing. Samantha Pauly as Kate Howard and Anna Uzelli as Catherine Parr. Mm-hmm. And once again, all of these women were just completely and utterly fantastic. And the sheer physicality of what they had to do. That show was a 90-minute marathon. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was so impressed. The as... dancing is incredible and also completely energetic. Yes. Like, how they managed to keep their singing tones while they're literally jumping around? Yes. <laughs> That's impressive as hell. It is so impressive. It is a, it is a stunning feat. I mean, that show required so much prep work on the part of the actors. You had to be in peak physical condition to do the dancing alone. The dancing and the singing, as you were saying, I was blown away. Yeah, no, they were absolutely incredible. And thinking, like, so it's not exactly colorblind casting because we actually have um, a general look that I think uh, the creators are going for with each of the particular roles. Mm -hmm. But uh, we do actually have this interesting, um, not necessarily colorblind casting, but body type blind casting. So we actually Mm. have women who are a little bit bigger. 
Yes. We have women who are that traditional sort of, you know, tall, thin, beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. But so we have uh, body types that run the gamut. That, absolutely. Which is amazing. And all of them are shown to be beautiful and sexy and also just incredible dancers. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I thought that that was actually also something that I really appreciated. Uh, so anyone who's going to go and see the show, especially a younger person who might be a bit more impressionable, but then I'm also very impressionable, <laughs> um, would be going to go and see all of these amazingly talented, confident, beautiful women to do these roles who actually get to be queens yeah. on stage. And so I love the message that comes from that as well. So we have all of these messages that are incorporated, not just in the dialogue or in the music or in the dancing, but just in terms of the actors themselves and the representation that we get on the stage. Yes. Uh, from all sorts of different interse intersectionalities. I don't know if that's necessarily the right word for it, but you know what I'm going for. I do. Uh, so I think that that is also really interesting. And also actually Brittany Mack, if we ever get to see her, she's really short. Oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah, she's the, the normal Anna of Cleves actress. But, yeah, she's actually really short. Um, and she said uh, in the Q&A that Gary Coleman was one of her inspirations. Really? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and so we have this incredible energy that comes from these women as well. And that's another thing, too, that I really appreciated was the fact that all of the people on the stage were women. Yes. And that's something that you don't normally get. Like studies show that uh, people, when they're looking at movies or other things like that, that if there is, I think, 30% of the screen is the tipping point. I think if 30% so. of the people on the screen are women, then, then it feels like it's overwhelmingly women because of just how often we see men in on the screen. Yes. And how we don't often see women. And so to have the entire show be entirely women is huge. Mm -hmm. Five down, I'm the final one. Okay, well, <laughs> that is the first part of the conversation with Ryan. Uh, it went on for longer than the musical actually ran, so we are splitting this up into two sections. So please stay tuned for next week when I put together and edit up the second part of this conversation. And I also wanted to make sure that I gave a shout out to who was it on the YouTubes? I don't know, I need to double check. But uh, so there, the intro to this one, you may have noticed that I switched it up a bit because the audio quality wasn't as good. I tried to fix it up a bit. Uh, but the this was from the clip of the ending song called six as opposed to x wives which is at the beginning and this was actually taken from their live show at the mall of america so that was really exciting and i thought that'd be a really good way to finish us off uh with that so this is from their final song on it with the cast that i actually am talking about with ryan so that's really exciting <laughs> but anyway i hope you have a wonderful day thank you so much for tuning in to this cast and i'm looking forward to our next one so stay tuned stay well this has been courtney for history pop unfortunately ryan's not here while i'm editing it this later on but i know that he would also wish you well as well so uh thank you so much Stay tuned, stay well. This is Vic Courtney for History Pop, signing off. Take care.
has been written and performed by Courtney Herbert. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit.